Hey there, Next Real listeners, this is Andy. Before we dive into this episode, I wanted to let you know about an exciting change. As you may have noticed, we have been including episodes of one of our other shows, Movies We Like, in this feed. Well, we are thrilled to announce that Movies We Like has grown so much that it's now ready to strike out on its own. From now on, to catch the latest episodes of Movies We Like, you'll want to head over to its dedicated feed and hit that subscribe button. We've got plenty of other great content lined up, and we don't want you to miss a thing. Don't worry, though, the next Real Film Podcast isn't going anywhere. We'll still be bringing you the same in-depth discussions and analysis of your favorite films right here in this feed. So if you love what we do with Movies We Like, be sure to search for it in your favorite podcast app and subscribe today. Thanks for being a part of our podcast journey, and now, let's get back to the show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of Movie Conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Welcome to the next real speakeasy on Rashpixel.fm. I'm Andy Nelson, and that over there is Pete Wright. Hi, everybody. On the next real speakeasy, we invite a guest from the industry to join us, and instead of serving up their favorite cocktails, they serve up movies that they love so that we can all talk about them. We'd like to welcome our guest to this month's show, Aussie cinematographer Toby Oliver. A graduate of Melbourne's renowned Swinburne Film School, Toby kept busy making beautiful images for films that played all over the world and garnered him a number of ACS awards, as well as Australian Academy Award nominations. Now living in L.A., and hot off a great year, having shot both Jordan Peele's fantastic horror, Get Out, and Chris Landon's comic thriller, Happy Death Day, Toby's latest film, Insidious, The Last Key, just hit theaters this past Friday, as of when we're recording this. Welcome to the show, Toby. Uh, thanks very much. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. So you're a cinematographer from Down Under. Uh, how, how did you get into cinematography? What was your path that led you to that? Uh, well, look, I started pretty early on because I went to um, straight out of high school. I got into Swinburne Film School, which you mentioned in the intro. And uh, at Swinburne, at the, in those days, it was really a writer-director course. But, you, but each uh, student who went through that school... A uh, pretty small film school uh, got to do a bit of everything. We did editing, we edited our own films, we we did cinematography and other students' films. Uh, we are very you know green and embryonic in our skills. Uh, however, that's where we started off. And so when I left, finished there, graduated from there, I had directed some shorts, but I really found myself gravitating you know towards the camera in a in a pretty in a pretty sort of direct way. And so that was what I decided to pursue. And um, you know, I just kept shooting after that. I shot a lot of short films, and um, uh, before I was able to, you know, graduate and shoot longer form feature films, um, after a few years after I left film school. But that's how I started. I really started started a film school, and then just went in sort of into cinematography from there. You were, do you have a? How do you frame that? Uh, you know, thinking about what it is that drives you to camera. Well, I th I've always been pretty visual. I think, you know, I got my first stills camera as a, you know, young teenager, 12 or 
13 years old uh, and used to take a, do a lot of photography. And I found an affinity with that. I mean, I have an eye for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that people kind of, you know, they kind of have or they don't have that sort of, sort of artistic sensibility for the, the composition of a shot and, and sort of the feeling for the light. And uh, so I sort of, I guess I've always had that. Um, and um, it's, it, that was the area that in, in filmmaking, that's where I found my strength was, you know. It was I, in terms of writing scripts and so on, and, and uh, it wasn't, you know, my, my scripts were a bit, little <laughs> bit hokey and corny. I mean, I made the movies and they're kind of, they're still there. People want to go and search, search very deep to find them, my, my short films. Um, but they're, you know, they're, they're kind of, you know, I mean, as I was young, I was only young. What was I, 19 years old making those films? But uh, I saw that, you know, my strength wasn't really in that, on the, on the words on the page so much as it was with the pictures. And uh, and that's where, you know, you, you kind of, uh, hopefully you, you make a smart decision to try and do what you're good at rather than what you're not so good at. So, <laughs> you're right, yeah. right. <laughs> and that, that, that's and always that, a plus. Yeah, it's always a good idea. And so I, I kind of <laughs> just been pursuing that for a long time, you know, and uh, and following that path. That's fantastic. Now, now in cinematography, you you've done a variety of different projects, including uh, you know some horror films we've already talked about, and some documentary yeah. projects, and and a, a drama, kind of a whole variety. Do you find as as a cinematographer, you you end up gravitating toward anything in particular? particular or or are you kind of open to all of it i kind of i'm kind of from the school of being open to all of it in a way because i think um, a cinematographer's job is to really uh you're there as as a as a fundamental sort of cog in the wheels of telling the story uh visually and it's sort of no matter what that story is or what genre that is uh you 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 know it's your job to fit in there and and um and make it work you know visually you know it's and i think uh for me i find it a thrill to work it's quite exciting to work in different genres um and different types you know go from a television show to a documentary or then go to a movie a horror movie or then go to you know a different genre of movie and i you know i find that refreshing i mean a lot of people tend to perhaps more specialize and they're sort of just doing sort of action movies or they only just do horrors or they only just do this or that i like to you know i like to sort of spread and sort of do different things because it's refreshing and refreshes your creative juices if you have to tackle something that you really haven't dealt with for a while um that said since i've landed here in america from australia i've come you know moved over here from australia about uh, four four and a bit years ago uh i've done mostly almost exclusively horror um and that's just because that's where the path has has led uh, since I landed here. Do you ever find there's a, a risk as a cinematographer to, to be typecast? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, it, less so in Australia, where you kind of have to be a bit more of a jack of all trades, uh, so to speak, um, yeah. because of the nature of the business. It's a small, small industry there. But I think here in the United States, uh, it's a big industry. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of different projects being made. You can get um, very much so typecast as the guy who did that or, you know, whatever your last job is, is that's what you do, you know, as opposed to um, uh, looking back and seeing all the stuff you've done over your whole career. So for me, it's been, um, you know, it's been great, my opportunity to start working here and do a whole bunch of movies, especially for that are with Blumhouse with, you know, Happy Death Day and Get Out as yeah, just, right. just a couple of them. Um, but I'm also cognizant of the fact to be able to not get too narrowly you know um pigeonholed at the same time so you know i'm trying to trying to avoid that long term i'm I'm looking as i just scroll your credits you know we've got from at least 2016 the darkness and wildling Mm. and then get out of course and Mm. happy i mean and insidious the last key Mm. you know i think all of them uh their tags could very well start with Uncovering a dark secret, you know. <laughs> right. I mean, they they all kind of fit into that. <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah, uh, that's true. I, I can't. I, Andy is the is the absolute connoisseur of of uh, of the horror yeah. genre. I am too. Way too emotionally invested in the film. They scare the hell out of me, man. Yeah. They scare the hell out of me. Although yeah. Get Out, one of my very favorite films of the year. That was just an exceptionally strong film, uh, and and beautiful to watch, and super clever, and. Um, and uh, 
and happy death day why what is happy death day doing being funny uh there's uh, it's fantastic well what's interesting about those two films in particular um and get out especially is that uh whilst they're it's it, it's called a horror movie. It's been slotted into that genre, except at the Golden Globes, where it's a music a, a right. musical <laughs> slash comedy. But it's um, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, who knows? We'll find out uh, tomorrow if that if that plan <laughs> yeah, that little uh, idea sort of uh, is going to work out. Um, but uh, it was uh, it's 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 not just a horror movie. I mean, it, it transcends genre, and it's about a whole bunch of raft of other things other than just being a you know, a horror story, a ghost story. And uh, that's what I find exciting. And I think within the horror genre, there's opportunity for that. It's not like you, you know, some of the, the movies in the genre obviously, have, you know, conform and, you know, fit the, your expectations uh, much more. But uh, then there's movies like Get Out, which is almost, you know, it's kind of unique, but there are others where, where you... Um, where it's transcending the genre and it and it's and it's exciting because you you you're messing around with the you know different ideas and different ways of telling the story, um, and I, you know I find that exciting. Absolutely, uh, with within a genre films um, and Happy Death Day too. I think had its has also its sort of you know it's it's a sort of a comedy slasher in a way, but then it's also dealing with the whole time loop metaphysical weirdness of uh, you know the girl waking up over and over and over sort of. A la Groundhog Day, so it's sort of um, that, and that's also a me- you know meshing of you know two or three genres in there. Speaking of uh, movies that uh, that might uh, shift a little bit from expectations as far as uh, what you get from them normally, um, we are actually uh, here to talk about a, uh, a fairly recent film that you picked um, last year's. Uh, uh, I, I should have checked. But I'm assuming we're not talking about the 1958 film directed by Leslie Norman. Oh, that would be a shame. We are, in fact, <laughs> we are in fact talking no, about Christopher Nolan. Yeah, film I haven't seen Dunkle the 1958 version. No, I'm, I'm definitely talking <laughs> about uh, Chris Nolan's movie. So, so what is it about this film that made you interested in in uh, wanting to have a conversation about it? Well, for me, it was interesting because it, I mean, there's a whole there's a there's a raft of technical things, and a Chris Nolan is this. You know, come, this is pertaining to cinematography in particular. Chris Nolan is a absolute diehard film addict. You know, he can't, he never touches anything but motion picture film. And the word digital to him is is like a, you know, a um, very rude word that he doesn't that he doesn't like to right. to use or even deal with. And so that's kind of interesting in this sort of tackling this kind of epic. And the the reason why it was interesting that he chose to use film and not just ordinary film. He shot 70% of the movie on IMAX, which is the, the largest right. film format that there ever was um, or is. You know, it's, 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 um, it's a massive uh, negative 70-millimeter film, 65-millimeter film traveling sideways through the camera. So it's, it's a monster uh, format, but it's, it's analog and it's old-fashioned. And he's, he's making this, uh, this epic movie, but, which is at the same time as being an epic uh, war story about the, the escape of the British Army from, um, you know, the Second World War from from Europe. It's told in a very intimate way, where the camera is just so close and so visceral with the action that um, it's just an interesting that he's using these this giant kind of, you know, very much old fashioned and outdated technology to shoot an incredibly intimate sort of um, epic movie. Um, and that was that's what interested me from the cinematography side of it. Yeah, it's kind. Of, I mean, obviously, it's a big war film. I mean, there's 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 you know big war sequences and everything as as the the planes are coming down and sinking ships. And I mean, there's a lot of things happening. But I but I do agree. There's there are elements within the film that um, made me wonder, like why did why did he choose to use this format? Just like I asked when uh, when Quentin Tarantino shot uh, the Hateful Eight, and that's a and it's a similar question. He shot that on on 65 millimeter uh, and uh, the whole thing takes place in one room <laughs> you know with a group of and well it starts off with eight people um but it's all in literally in one room except for the first 10 minutes of the movie or whatever right and and so and, and making a movie like dunkirk where there's all this action and and really visceral and your camera's in all sorts of places and underwater and hanging off the sides of ships and in plane cock spitfire cockpits that are actually flying in the air and doing actual dogfights with these cameras attached, you know, filming the pilots and whatnot. Why 
why do it the hard way? You know, why, why didn't he just get the latest digital Sony's or whatever cameras, um, you know, the best of the best, because budget's not really a problem with a Chris Nolan movie, um, and do it, do it the easy way. And it's sort of, it's, that's, I find that really quite fascinating. It, it, you know, for me, it struck me, uh, and first of all, uh, you know, cinematography by Hoyt van Hoytema, uh, who, who is a, f- a, a madman uh, <laughs> watching the team of people try to lift yeah. that camera that's onto right. his shoulder for these shots. Unreal what, what he did. So massive credit to, to him. Oh, no. And he, he took it on, and, and he's, you know, he, he just is it, extraordinary yeah he feels no pain is people, what we're I know, talking about I really read, I mean, read articles <laughs> where people are sort of asking how do you hold that thing for so long and and it's like oh i just you know try not i don't don't think about it he just does it <laughs> right right no. <laughs> right oh, some geez. people are, are missing uh, a nerve connection <laughs> in their spinal cord and they literally don't feel pain uh and and that's what he sounds like oh, a little physical it's okay. pain it's okay yeah, yeah. you get over it yeah because the whole movie is almost virtually the whole oh, oh, so big big stretches of the movie are handheld with an imax imax camera and so, some of it handheld on a boat too yeah well a lot of well most of the boat stuff is handheld because when you i've shot on boats before the easiest way to shoot on a boat is handheld because you use your body to counteract all the the movement of the of the motion of the water the motion, yeah. um you can't right, really right. do it on a tripod forget about it this doesn't work this was the thing that struck me about the, the using the big frame i you know we we've, we've seen it when we, we go to see you know D- dark knight for example and and you see when the frame adjusts and and uh, you know f- f- into imax and you you understand then that we've switched to imax to capture a certain right. sense of scope and and i I find it so jarring in this film that we we never change from the big, you know, the wide shots, the super scope shots to the shots uh, close up on the faces, you know, trying to reload a jammed weapon. And it, it's always jarring to me that the, you know, uh, because I never expect my feeling, my eno- emotional connection to the frame to change when I see those faces. And in this film, I absolutely do. It really does make a difference. And I, I really, as a digital shooter myself, I, I hate Nolan for this because I want him not to be right. But he, it's, it is incredible. There's something about it, isn't it? And it's, and it's when you, well, I just watched the film, you know, again, obviously recently for this. And, um, and those, you know, it's, it's for a lot of people don't really even realize or understand the difference in the format and, um, and um, why it's different. But it, it exists sort of like on an emotional level as well. And I guess it's um, it's that large format thing and those huge lenses. Then when you get up close to people's faces, it's it creates a sense of of depth and sort of real, realism or roundness or whatever you want to call it. Um, so it's one of those things a little bit hard to put your finger on, but it's certainly is a it gives an incredible effect of to me. It's an incredible effect of intimacy of being of standing there right next to that person on screen in a funny way. When you think about how they, uh, not it, it's not just about the the you know the emotional sort of resonance that comes with with you know the large format. It's also a, a certain intention around you know Nolan and and Hotema in the way they structure their shots. Can you can you talk a little bit about what strikes you? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting how the it's it's kind of in the editing and the sound too because the way Nolan puts the whole film together, he he it's quite it's like the whole movie is sort of this slow burn with these peaks of action and then sort of goes quiet for a moment and then peaks of action and that slowly keeps building towards the end all the the different three storylines which are all happening in different sort of time spaces kind of kind of meld together and it's all sort of happening at once but it's um in a way a lot of the shots in it are quite simple and straightforward it might be just a handheld shot but there's something about the proximity of the camera to what's happening that makes the difference you know other than the big epic wide shots the camera is often really very close to what's to to the people and the action um but it feels expansive at the same time and so it's um it's you know it's 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 classic in a way it's quite classic filmmaking i found the movie upon the time i first saw it almost um yes it's a war movie and it's full of quite a lot of action and it's you know there's there's brutality in it and there's emotion but it's quite meditative in a way because there's so little dialogue i mean it's like a page of dialogue probably in the whole thing and um you kind of get sort of sucked into and lulled into it in a way 
and uh, go along for the ride. And I think that's really quite interesting filmmaking because it's not often the way an action war movie will be told, you know, this kind of tone. Well, that's something that was really interesting that struck me is is how um, how I did kind of uh, gravitate to following these people that, I mean, it, it's it's a tricky film because you do, it's not like one where, like you were saying, you don't really have a protagonist. You're, you know, there's not a central character that you're following through this whole thing. There are characters that we, we are following, like Tommy uh, on the beach and uh, Ferrier, the pilot, and, uh, and Mr. Dawson on the boat. But but it's not really their stories. They're just people in this big, you know, situation. It's a very much a situational film where we're just kind of saying, looking at this thing going, will they make it or not? And I found that to be a really interesting, whether it is like close-up shots of Tommy lying on the beach as he's kind of looking at, at kind of the devastation going on in the sea, or whether it is watching some of these soldiers on the boat um, as it's sinking and you you have like really disorienting camera angles where the water is like rising, but it's rising like from left to right or strange directions. Yeah, that's right. And sideways. So they had they have these ca- cameras. So they had one, one of the ships that they had, the minesweeper set was a was a sort of half a ship with forced perspective so the top of it looked you know taller and further away than it really was and um they had it on a giant gimbal so it could sort of tip over and there's all the you know to show that it's sinking and they had several shots that are very cool where the the camera the imax camera is bolted actually to the ship and that's and it tips as it's tipping over on the gimbal and sinking the water level is like spinning around the frame and then you know over the top of the lens and there's there's moments like that that are really quite incredibly visceral and dynamic well especially when they throw a soldier in there climbing sideways across yeah. the yeah, yeah. yeah the verticality of the frame is amazing it lends to that disorientation that you can imagine they have in a situation like that and that's was one of the things about the movie that i really liked it's like a war situation like this um you know often in 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 war movies or action movies things that seem to be more organized and you know straightforward and you know it, it you know, you go from A to B and you have that fight and you, then you do this. Whereas in Dunkirk, it's quite chaotic and no one really knows, seems to know exactly what's going on and there's stuff coming at you from all directions and you, you're hopping between different scenes where no one really seems to, you know, be be fully aware of what's going to happen. Um, and that, to me, seemed to represent the reality of, of being in a war situation like that. You know, you, you, you just don't know what's going on. And it, and it is chaotic and, and dangerous at any second. And I think it was somehow captured quite quite um, elegantly, I think, with the movie. Something, something else that struck me, which n- not until it was over, really, is how this is largely a war film that's about a retreat from this largely faceless enemy. It's not really a film about heroics. I mean, we have that kind of that final last bit with Tom Hardy um, but other than that, yeah, which I really loved. I loved that moment where the, he runs of gas in the plane and it's just gliding in um, in, in almost silence of just a wind noise. And that, for me, kind of in a way that just those shots of that plane gliding over the beach sort of almost um, epitomised that sort of meditative nature of the movie. That's also that's also there amongst the chaos. It's it's kind of interesting. It's sort of. Um, the way that it, it drags you in like that. <clears throat> it's an it's to me it's an emotional uncorking after all of this movie and it, you know I it, I found myself just responding very emotionally. I was tearing up when the when we finally have that you know that sunset you know yeah well when yeah the first time I saw it when he finally he he yeah he finally went down and landed on the beach. It's really quite my gosh you know yeah the the rest of it it's just it's amazing it's weighty it's impactful but that sequence when you finally get that silence and i you know i it made me made me reflect on the sequence when in frankly in the last jedi when laura dern hyperspaces through the the uh the rest of the imperial fleet in complete silence like oh, right. that that sort of nature especially in dunkirk as we've, right. been, yeah, we've yeah. been sort of and i'll say this you know with all respect we've been suffering through this sort of shepherd tone uh you know irresolute music or soundscape that that to to have that sort of release during this it's it really stunning yeah it's a nice moment i mean look i mean i think chris nolan's you know he's you know he's a master filmmaker and he understands and controls every element of what he's what he's dealing with and so to have it's it's quite 
I think what's amazing is it has this epic movie with the car, you know, thousands of extras and ships and planes and explosions and all the rest of it, and he's able to also very carefully control this level of intimacy in a movie without having a central character. And I just think that's that you're, you know, normally a narrative, you're following the hero and, you know, things are a bit more clear cut and it's not in this movie. So it's, you know, it's, it's quite almost experimental in a way what he's doing. It, yeah, it very much is. It, it's taking kind of, uh, you know, a, a, a war film, which people are kind of used to, uh, and the, it's taking out that storytelling, that standard Hollywood storytelling element out of it. And it is making something that's very much more kind of this emotional yeah, totally. um, yeah. moment of people just trying to figure out this this uh, particular situation and just right the whole idea of uh will they or won't they uh for for every character i thought was uh, yeah quite interesting uh where you didn't really feel like oh well he's the hero he's definitely going to make it or things like that i mean i wouldn't have been surprised if you know if tommy or, or got shot or if mr dawson's ship got sunk like all of it could have happened and it wouldn't have been surprised no that's right because anything could happen it, was, it had to, it has a certain unpredictability about it too yeah i mean the way he uses time you know tell, talking about the film on three different time scales, right? The one week, the one day, and the one hour. As soon as I wrap my head around what's going on there, I feel like I'm slapped in the face. This is, as you say, he's a master filmmaker. This guy is operating at a different level. Yeah, in a way. I mean, I it took a few, when I first, on Pong, first seeing the movie, it took me a little while to get my head around that as to, oh, how come we were there? But then you realize what's going on. And then you realize when the, the storylines cross over, like when Tom Hardy's plane flies over the, the, the Tommy's boat and um and sort of sorry, not Tommy the Mr Lawson's boat rather and uh, oh right there's the connection there he is that's his moment of his hour versus their moment of their day and you know and it kind of uh it's very clever and then it, of course as a filmmaking technique to build tension it's it's important because when as, as especially as the movie ramps up towards the the ending you want to be able to cut between these on these threads so you can build up the pace and build up the tension if you only had one thread going it's it's harder to do that and if you give yourself three three storylines all happening at the same time kind of <laughs> at the same time then you get then you get that opportunity to chop and change between them and use match cuts like you, you're cutting from the little boat and then there's a similar shot that you're cutting to from the from the beach and so that it's like the action is almost continuous even though we're dealing with all these different these different places and these different time time sort of zones uh they're kind of uh, all becoming one and that was kind of, that was clever but from your perspective as a cinematographer would this I, I mean you're trying to sort of obviously unravel this with the benefit of hindsight does this change does these three timeline uh approach to the narrative does it change the way you approach the camera mm. in your perspective potentially i mean it depends on whether you wanted a a really different stylistic feel to one or one or one or another of these of the different timeline stories. Um, I think because in the, in Dunkirk you've got the the guy on the beach um, and into ships, and then you've got the little boat, and then you've got the plane. So that each each of those scenarios has its own individual visual identity because of the nature of the way you have to shoot it. So that itself kind of kind of gives you a, a, a sense of definition about where which one you're in because in the plane they've all got it's all aerials and you're always you're in the plane the whole time you never you never sort of see you know see the air base or where they took off from or any of that you're, it's it's they're always in the air uh, Tom Hardy's always flying so you it's all air to air stuff and and rigs on the planes on the Spitfires and so that's that gives it in itself it's got its own look and feel for those sequences just by the nature of it but the movie is consistent in terms of its look over the whole thing because they shot the whole thing on on either the IMAX cameras or the 65 millimeter camera so the the look is pretty consistent aside from the the look the way that that all of that that does uh, kind of feel like it is of the same world I did find it really interesting in the sound design also how they bring this kind of ticking clock um, throughout. And 
Yeah, or it's it's a ticking clock, or sometimes it sounds like a heartbeat kind of thing, doesn't it? Part of it, yeah, it's like a like a pumping noise, right? Yeah, and and how how they play with that, and sometimes how the sound feels like it it uh, the the ticking speeds up a little bit or it slows down a little bit, and kind of using it to emphasize different elements within the story, and uh, also kind of used to kind of just get you to feel like more tense from different scenes. I mean, sometimes when that ticking clock is playing and all of a sudden it really starts picking up as as like you see the the plane flying overhead and he's chasing down uh, one of the german uh, the german planes it's like it it just really builds that tension it was it was such a fascinating tool that i've seen employed before but i don't feel like i've ever seen it used as well like this it was so successful hearing that ticking clock used that way i think it was because this movie has that sense that it's all happening Whilst it's happening in those three different time sort of periods we're talking about, the compressed hour, day, week, it all seems like it's happening in real time in some way. Like this is all this is all like in, happening in a, in a two hour thing when you sit down and watch the movie. It's or it's actually I think it's just under two hours, isn't it? This movie. It's, it's surprisingly yeah. short for the subject matter. Yeah, yeah. For, for Christopher Nolan. Surprisingly Dolan, short, <laughs> considering what it is. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's sort of uh, so that because you feel like you're watching a real time movie, uh, you that uh, ticking clock idea of beating heart, the rhythmic sort of pumping thing uh, seems to work even better because you it, it's you're always conscious of the time slipping by, and they haven't got much time because the Germans are coming. So there's this you know there's a sense of ur- urgency uh, to get the guys off the beach. Um, the whole thing is a t- ticking clock from the beginning. It really is. It's, and it's, it, it's interesting. Like the, 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 the way that he structured the script, I mean, I already said, it's not really about heroes, but it really is kind of almost about these self-interested, uh, you know, I, I don't want to call them cowards, but Tommy certainly is acting in self-interest throughout. I mean, all of his actions in the beginning, like, you know, picking up the guy, the, 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 the injured person to carry him on so he can get onto the boat before other people, it's it's so interesting how uh, like that's who we're following, which is almost which is almost a, a, like an anti-hero. Why are we following these guys? And I, but what it tells you is that that this is the reality for a lot of these soldiers as they're trying to escape. They don't want to be heroes, you know. They just at this point in time when there's there's no they can't there's no point in attacking the Germans and they can't you know they're not going to win against those odds. They've got to just get it get out of there, you know. They've just got to try and. They just want to live. It hit well with the um, the end of the film when you have Winston uh, Churchill's um, his speech kind of being read by Tommy as they're on the train um, as they're talking about this. Because, I mean, it was interesting and it didn't even hit me until I get to the end of the film where Alex is talking about, you know, being afraid that the public's going to hate them because they, they all fled. You know, they weren't staying and fighting. And the fact that that it was like this, you know, it was exactly the opposite of what he was expecting. Um I, it really kind of struck me. I'm like, that, it just it was so fascinating to kind of look at it through that lens. Well, this film makes a strong statement that there's a difference between cowardice and fear. And we're picking up a place in the story where they have nothing but fear. They're alone. They're on a beach. They're completely isolated. And they're losing a, a major part of the battle. And and I think, you know, if you focus on just this one guy trying to get out of there, it may look like uh, he's a coward. But if he were truly a coward, would he be there in the first place? Right. I, I just yeah. found myself kind of reflecting on that throughout the film. And it's because it's not that kind of heroic sort of uh, war film of a, you know, almost propagandist sense. It's not like that at all. It's really telling a totally different story to to what it's like being in, you know, in that situation, in a war situation, being a human being and um, how you would really react it just has that that resonance about it i think aside from the film uh i mean using film stock uh, the imax film stock for this um i i thought it was interesting that uh that nolan was very uh adamant to use as as many practical effects as possible to avoid kind of the cg and everything and i think that that also lent to uh people's reactions and kind of what we saw and and kind of had as a visceral visceral reaction when we were watching them it has a it has a huge a lot a huge amount to do with it because he he wanted he does a lot of as much as they can do he does in camera you know um, and that's why they had, you know, actual Spitfires or replica Spitfire planes with the actual IMAX cameras attached to them flying around and filming actual, you know, dogfights. Uh, they're, all, they're all real, they're largely real aircraft. And um, that, 
you know, just do it when you could create it all fully CGI and these days and it looked pretty pretty real, but it's not necessarily going to have a certain visceral quality that he's able to capture. So it's, uh, of course, the who, who knows the difference, the expense and effort gone to having to do it that way. Oh, sure. And is incredible and yeah. the planning and the cost and okay we've got to all use real planes and it's all you know right. and get them to fly past and we've got to time it so the, the explosion is exactly the right time as the planes fly through and you know and these days often all, all the planes are cgi and we don't have to you know do any of that but he's he did it the hard way in in every respect and uh you know it, i think it makes a big difference i think it's it's not everyone's going to make movies that way the way chris nolan makes them but I'm kind of glad he is. <laughs> There's a very funny article on Art of VFX uh, written by Vincent Frey. It's a, uh, it's an interview with Andrew Jackson, who is the overall VFX supervisor. He's over at Double Negative. And it feels like Jackson is trolling uh, Frey because it, he's asking these questions like, you know, I, I, how did you do all of the battle? Well, we those were those were practical. Those were in camera. Really? Okay. Uh, how about uh, the ships uh, sinking? Oh, no, we have ships on a gimbal. We definitely sank those yeah uh, how yeah. about the planes yeah. crashing yeah. into the water surely you did cg to crash the plane no nope, no nope, we pretty much <laughs> crashed the planes into the water <laughs> the real plane. it was all practical the and then it's like what did you do man <laughs> yeah i should be interested to know exactly what they did yeah. i mean obviously there's a there's there's a there's, i'm sure there's some visual effects in there that is quite seamless but because it's minimized or it's it's background and bit of i know there's extensions obviously of all the guys on the beach i don't think they had actually had you know two hundred thousand guys but um things like that but i mean i don't know exactly but the fact that so much of it is caught in, is captured in camera is just, just adds to that amazing visceral quality of what do, what do you what's your take on the whole idea that nolan had of uh, i mean here he had this story that was you know he didn't want it to feel like there is a central protagonist um, of going with largely unknowns to kind of uh, carry the weight of the film on their shoulders. Yeah, yeah. I wonder about that. Um, I mean, obviously, with the the young the young guy, the young soldier on the beach, uh, Tommy. He's he's you know he he's just he's a young actor, so he may well have been a an unknown anyway. At any rate, but the only re- real, I mean, there's you know there's Kenneth Branagh's in it and Tom Hardy's in it, so there's a there's a I guess there's a couple of familiar faces. Right, there were there were a couple. I think uh, I think he he cast a couple like uh, um, uh, Kenneth Branagh and James Darcy as as the colonel and commander that were on the the mole kind of during the evacuation, and and Nolan said he kind of wanted them to be there as as almost a Greek chorus for the audience <laughs> yeah, uh, right. which i thought was interesting because i mean they are there to kind of contextualize a lot of stuff going on for you and i thought that was pretty interesting man that they're, they're kind of the only people that really haven't much dialogue <laughs> yeah uh, really in terms of a conversation um and that's that's kind of you know there's not a lot of um not a lot of words spoken in the movie which is interesting because it was also a little bit of a technical decision about why he decided to shoot imax so so much of the movie uh, it's because it didn't have a lot of dialogue. The problem with an IMAX camera is it's incredibly noisy, so you can't actually f- record any dialogue or sound whilst the camera's running. So to in, in those longer dialogue scenes, probably particularly the ones on the mole with, with Kenneth Browner, he, he had to shoot 65mm Panavision cameras rather than IMAX, which is a format probably you know roughly half the size. But they're properly soundproof cameras that you can record sound with. So that was sort of conceptually that sort of by having minimal a minimal amount of dialogue throughout the movie that allowed him to shoot, you know, more with the IMAX camera, which is what they you know were really keen on. Looking looking at the cast of people that we had, and we talked a little bit about uh, Tommy, played by Finn Whitehead, who was largely a uh, this was largely his first film, um, and likewise uh, Alex was played by Harry Styles, who. I guess I could say he's largely an unknown as far as film goes, but of course he's member of One Direction, so there certainly is a contingency of people who know who he is. 
What's most interesting about that is he was cast unknown to um, to Nolan. To Nolan, yeah. All right. <laughs> he didn't know okay. he was <laughs> in uh, One Direction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He actually won the role at an audition. So yeah. Chris Nolan's not a huge One Direction fan. Then. Not a huge Clearly. One Direction fan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess not. <laughs> looking looking at some of the other areas of the cast, though, um, I did want to chat a little bit about the the C, the cast that we have there. We have Mark Rylance as Mr. Dawson and Killian Murphy as the the soldier that they bring on. Uh, also, Tom Glenn Carney as uh, Peter, uh, Mr. Dawson's son, and Barry Keegan as George. Um, it, it's such an interesting small group uh, that we have here. And I was, uh, I mean, Mark Rylance, uh, you know, he he has been nothing but an amazing uh, actor ever in films ever since I first saw him in Bridge of Spies. Um, and he's just been doing amazing stuff. I know he's done a lot of theater and a lot of other work, but uh, his his performance here as Mr. Dawson really kind of made so much of this film for me, particularly the moment when um, when he sees his son kind of, uh, this is after George has, uh, has died uh, accidentally due to the hands of Killian Murphy. And, and Killian is asking him if he's okay. And Peter, Peter just kind of says, yeah. And Mr. Dawson, he just kind of gives his son that little nod. Yeah. Did you see that, that little nod? Yeah. Isn't that, that was so brilliant. That's such a, a lovely little bit of performance there. It's like, it's okay. You, you did the right thing. You know. It was it was so powerful it's dealing with these soldiers. I mean, this is a guy who's yeah already going through PTSD here, and he was, and it, it just sort of summed up his character, and it kind of summed up emotionally the character of all the English aliens that that sort of you know went over there in their little boats to try and um, and rescue as many soldiers. It was kind of there's something about it that was really quite powerful and heartfelt. Like that they would, you know, of course they would do that, you know. It, it was they had to do it. it it's a funny statement on the civilians understanding of the cost of war right i mean in this case you know mr dawson understands the cost of war and is willing to do something that is so heart-wrenching as to lie to this soldier because he knows what the soldier's going through and has been through it himself exactly no very powerful he was kind of like a little rock in the movie his performance actually uh, even though he's not technically not you know the main character because you know it's not, not it's not about him you know it's about something more than that bit much bigger than that right just like uh, exactly what he says to the soldiers like we've got to go back there's no hiding from it son we've got to <laughs> yeah, do it it's just like yeah. it's it's much bigger than mm-hmm. me it's not about me and if i'm okay you know we've got to go back oh, we we've got to talk just a little bit about the air because i have never seen uh dog fighting like this no for me, it was like one of the real highlights of the movie that I thought, wow, the dogfighting sequences are just so good. And, you know, I think they they went to extraordinary lengths to put the IMAX cameras in the planes and um, fit them, you know, for all those visceral sort of perspective shots and also shots into the cockpit where the camera could actually pan around inside the cockpit they used a specially designed periscope lens that worked with imax so this especially <laughs> is amazing the, the people from panavision specially made it i think it was dan saski who's the, the lens kind of incredible lens guru at panavision uh built this periscope lens that could work on a giant format and they could swivel it around and tilt it up and down inside the cockpit because the camera itself of course isn't going to fit in the cockpit forget about it so it's sort of it had to be sort of extended in there and then they could actually do little little camera moves and stuff um like when you you know it's on the pilot and then it pans a little bit to show look out the window to see the plane crashing below or the boat the boats are sort of you know below as he swings around it quite extraordinary to go a bit like again it's sort of like the easy way to be used digital you know even if you just use digital for that those sequences in the plane would have been there's so many technical ways you could have done it but no they did it the you know the really difficult way (laughs) trying to make (laughs) making it work on imax film cameras and you have to give them credit for that for making it work so well you've got some great some great shots uh, with the camera mounted on the plane right. as the as it, as it maneuvers and it reminded me of 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 gopro footage but i'm like it's no. like gopro footage <laughs> at the highest level you know? <laughs> it's the most amazing it's like, GoPro. it's like a yeah, gopro camera that just happens to be about two thousand times bigger than an actual <laughs> <laughs> i mean literally these cameras oh, weigh about 80 pounds and they're like you know about two and a half feet wide and you know two feet deep it's quite a it's a huge drive 
huge giant box. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, I you know the the work of of Jack Loudon and uh, Tom Hardy as Collins and Ferrier, and and of Michael Caine as their uh, you know voice on the radio. Oh, right. Was that uh, Michael Caine? I didn't know that in the credit. Oh, right. Great. Yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah. I guess it was a little nod to his role that he had in the movie The Battle of Britain. Yeah, that's right. Which, yeah, uh, yeah. Was, was well, like, that, yeah, that's that, great. And of course, he's a Nolan regular. Yes. Yes, he is. Of course. You know. uh, it, just a, a terrific uh, set. And that's that's one that, you know, for me, that I don't know. There are some sequences where you have the boats, you know, crushing the soldiers in the water, and that's pretty horrifying. But for me, the, 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 the sequence that really triggers, you know, every one of my little anxieties is you know these guys going under in the in the planes and and that rescue was particularly strong at, at point in the always oh, rescued the, out of the sinking of plane the yeah. yeah yeah oh that was just awful yeah. oh, and and it was played for so long it's it just so long <laughs> over and over we're gonna cut away and do something else and then oh he's, he's still, still banging, banging on the glass, the glass. Yep, still there <laughs> no no it's that is it's we don't know it's one of those t- worst fears isn't it getting drowned drowned yeah. in something and you can't get out of and i think there's a couple of scenes where nolan plays that because they're all the men trapped in the the sinking minesweeper as well and only the tommy gets out through the door and the dutch and the and the, and the little dutch that's ship, right yeah, uh, the yeah. That, uh, they're yeah. in at the end you got that one guy yeah, who can't who, get out who doesn't, doesn't make, make it, it out yeah yeah, yeah. and that dutch ship was another wonderful little visual beacon throughout each of the the sequences yeah. you know that we we keep seeing yeah yeah because yeah, it was uh it was half sinking out. Yeah, it was, that's right. It kept floating, floating out into the, where the other action was happening in the other story. You know, right? It was <laughs> like this weird on, little cameo. What? <laughs> it's, there's some sweet it. Dutch money in this production. That's <laughs> yeah, what maybe. that is. <laughs> well, there's that Dutch character as well. So. That they, you know, they drag, they drag yeah, him right. down into the <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hans Zimmer does the score for this, um, and he is uh, he's also done a lot of uh, of Nolan's films. Uh, this is one where his uh, you, like Pete already mentioned those. Shepherd tones that he has kind of has droning on through the score throughout here. It's a very it's a it's a visceral score. It's not one that I think would be an easy listen outside of the film. No, I don't think so at all. But I think it works really well for the film. I thought it was one one of the sort of highlights of it because it's used, especially at the beginning, is quite sparingly. You don't hear a lot of score at the beginning of the movie. It's just sort of ambient sound a lot of it. When especially at the beginning, where he's still trying to escape from the town and get to the beach. Um, but then it slowly, then it starts building, and then you start hearing it, the score sort of making its mark. What's so um, funny about so. it, though, is I think the first resolved chord is an hour and thirteen minutes into the film. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. right. <laughs> and it, it's when the the first note of the little boats is coming into the the. Bay oh there. yeah, where the little boats arrive. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. like and the that, hero. And they music. start cheering. Yeah, because yeah. there's there's only really one moment like that. Uh, in, in the movie, exactly. that's yeah. that kind of joy, you know, it, it sort of it's a long, slow build to you before you get to that. You know? My understanding of that is uh, th- when that music hits, it's actually uh, Hans Zimmer actually pulled this piece that Edward Elgar had written called Nimrod from his Enigma variations, and he pulled that, and then, you know, he likes playing with stuff. He, he slowed that music down to six beats per minute and added some bass notes. So it's it, it's it's such a strangely slow yet very positive uh, moment. It's very interesting. Oh, right. Really powerful. Lee Smith did the uh, the editing on this. He's a, he's a uh, Christopher Nolan regular. Um, uh, my understanding is that it was the aerial sequence that was the one that they really struggled with the most, trying to get the beats right for that and and the, f- feel out the timing of how it should play out and when it should be cut in. And, and I mean, yeah, again, this is a story of these three journeys that we're on, finding the right way to kind of cut between them. I can only imagine uh, the challenge that uh, that Smith had um, as, as all the footage was coming in. Yeah, well, it would have taken, I think it would have taken them a long time, you know, the editing process, because it, there isn't a hard and fast way to, to make, you know, interweave all those stories necessarily. I mean, I wonder what the original script had, you know, what shape that was um and whether that was any resemblance to the finished to the finished movie because things often cha- often change and another thing i wonder too and i don't know the answer is whether they went in and did many reshoots like additional shooting after that already tried to to cut it together or whether he just already had all the material he needed um that yeah that i didn't re- because I didn't with the movies that, i've yeah. been doing like get out and uh, happy death day and pretty much all of the, the blumhouse movies at least um we've always gone back for you know it's on a smaller scale mind you but we've always gone back for a few days uh to shoot additional material 
um, whether it be different material like reshot scenes that are going to you know take a slightly different form, or whether it's just extra extra scenes or extra shots, you know, to to, to flesh out the movie. And uh, that's that's quite a normal thing. And I'm wondering if with Dunkirk whether that was. I mean, I don't know the answer, but um, it'd be interesting whether they had to do that because. You know, a lot of the scenes would be difficult to recreate months later and go, oh, now we need to shoot some more stuff of that ship, you know, and it's sort of like... <laughs> Especially considering, <laughs> like, the, the, the location nature of this because they yeah. did film this out at Dunkirk Beach and, you know, they were they were filming this in a lot of the, the real locations and, and I can only imagine the complexities of going, okay, well, now we have to go back and they had to rebuild the entire mole because that, I, I don't know if it had fallen into disuse and disrepair or been destroyed. Oh, or the knows, real mole. Oh, it right. wasn't there anymore. Yeah, right. yeah they, uh, they had to rebuild the entire thing using the uh, blueprints from the original. So, yeah, I can only imagine the complexities of, of having to yeah. go back and do some yeah, reshoots. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, because so many movies do a reshoot, but this this one, and you know, it would be tricky. <laughs> you know, Here's a, we've got resources. a we've got a phone tree with about a thousand phone numbers on it. We need you to call all the extras. Yeah, yeah. Back. <laughs> That's right. I got to be the same people. Come on, you know. Yeah, we've got to start cutting because all those all those vintage uniforms yeah. have been cut and fit to size. Yeah, yeah. We've got to get them all back. I mean, often you know a lot of that stuff does go into storage in case there's you know reshoots need to be made. Christopher Nolan certainly uh, is somebody who I think has 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 proven himself as a filmmaker with with films like this. Um, it was funny though. I read something about how he. I mean, I think he came up with the idea for this like back in the '90s, and um, uh, and he'd kind of been playing with it um, over uh, over the couple decades uh, before he finally got it made. But he said um, recently that, or when he got it made, he's like, "Well, I wanted to wait until I'd, you know, had a chance to really, you know, prove myself, uh, you know, shooting big action sequences." in films and I'm like, well, you kind of proved that, you know, quite a while ago. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right. Yeah, yeah. But as this has been something that he'd been wanting to do for a while, right? I see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a big story to have, it, you know, it hasn't been told recently in film, this, you know, the story of Dunkirk and kind of a unique, unique sort of slice of, you know, war history, because it's really about a rescue, not about, you know, a victory or an attack or anything. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting part to tackle. It strikes me as a war film that uh, just because of the way that it was made, where it isn't kind of artificially implanting this protagonist in this story so we could kind of see this heroic journey, um, it, it strikes me as a film that uh, might have uh, might last uh, longer through time because it feels a little more timeless. It just feels like a slice of life of this war as you're kind of watching it. And it, it, fe- it felt very much to me like, uh, yeah, like something that uh, definitely is going to stand the test of time. I think so, because it's it's not going to date itself either by having, you know, a, a particular story focused around a particular person or a particular actor. I can't wait. It's not yet a film that I am, um, you know, ready to show to my young kids. Uh, I feel like it, they need need to grow up a little bit. Uh, but it, this is one that I'm really looking forward to. Um, and it fared well. Andy, you want to walk us through how it did at award season? Well, it still is uh, still is in awards award season. Yeah, still yeah. in awards season. Yeah. That's right. There's yeah. a lot we don't yeah. know. Yeah, it's so far. Yeah. Uh, it's had 26 wins and 124 other nominations in awards. As far as what what it's received thus far, um, I know the Golden Globes are happening tomorrow. It does. Uh, it did get three nominations there for best motion picture drama. Uh, no competition for Get Out there. Um, no. Best director and best score. Uh, not to mention the SAG Awards uh, nominated it for outstanding action performance by a stunt ensemble. So it's um, yeah, I think that it's it's one of those films that um, it may not be kind of a huge explosion as far as like uh, you know the movie that's winning all the awards, but it certainly is something that I think is going to get a lot of recognition as we start watching over the coming months. Well, it's going to be interesting about the, the, the award for best cinematography too, because it's um, the, the main contender, I think, for best cinematography this year is going to be Roger Deakins with 2049, Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. I oh, think it's yeah. totally incredible standout of photography. Um, but Kirk is with that visceral quality that's achieved with this huge format. It's also uh, really quite, really quite amazing. And I think, you know, that could be, you know, giving Blade Runner a run for its money, so to speak. I think potentially could be, yeah, mm. definitely. How about yeah. Uh, how about the money, uh, Andy? 
Well, Christopher Nolan had a budget of $100 million plus another $50 million for prints and advertising, so $150 million for his war film. The movie premiered July 13th in London before having its wide release July 21st, 2017 opposite Girls Trip and Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. With all the various formats to view it, in, including ticket upgrade costs, the movie went on to make $188.4 million domestically and $337.2 million internationally for a total gross of $525.6 million, making Dunkirk the highest grossing World War II film ever made, not adjusted for inflation. All of this together puts Nolan's war film at an adjusted profit per finished minute of $3.5 million. Is that right? Wow. Yeah, I know. Pretty interesting. Yeah, that's pretty good. And it was interesting, the, the just briefly, the different ways you could go and see it. I mean, I know I didn't see it on the – I didn't see it at IMAX film presentation. Apparently, that was the ultimate. But I saw it at the digital IMAX presentation. So it was um, – which was a, lot, a bigger screen and also the sort of almost square – almost 4.3 format, not quite. Uh, so you see a lot of, you know, more above and below the frame, like the full IMAX picture, which is almost square. Um, it certainly made it more complicated to to look at uh, how to go see this movie because I remember when it came out, it had like there was this this thing about, okay, these, these are the ways you can see this movie. I'm like, wow, this yeah. is really going to confuse a good <laughs> yeah. chunk yeah. of when the you movie going audience. Because a lot of people won't, <laughs> wouldn't know their, you know, their IMAX from their, you know, whatever, you know, digital, digital this, IMAX that, you know, 75, 70 millimeter presentations there were that were widescreen. Um, I'm looking at, I've been looking at the 4K digital streaming release uh, that's recently come out. And that is, that's cropped. That sort of looks almost like a scope picture. Um, not quite, almost, it's sort of somewhere between two to one and 2.4 to one. So it's widescreen. So it doesn't show you the it's not square like the IMAX format. So it's, you know, it's just, it's cropping the top and bottom of that frame. So there's, you know, I think that's the thing when you shoot a format like IMAX because it's doesn't conform to the standard uh, theatrical sizes or, or even television sizes, you have to make compromises uh, when you, you know, for all those different platforms. At least um, it's not pan and scan, man. This, this could have been pan and scan. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, but it's interesting. I mean, that's just kind of, kind of fun to, you know, that, that they're playing with those formats and they'll, you know, they'll pursue it and then persevere with it and make it work. It's great. Well, I'm curious, yeah, you know, how many people are going to kind of use this as a, an example to say, Hey, let's go out and do that. I feel like there are very few filmmakers anymore who want to kind of push themselves to that. And, and Nolan certainly seems to be one who continuously does. But uh, yeah, it makes me wonder where are we going to get more of this? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's like for Nolan, it's a religion that he shoots it on film and the, the, the sort of highest quality film he can he can use, in this case, IMAX. Um, but for a lot of most, like 99.99%, just about of most directors and filmmakers, uh, it's that's not a huge priority, you know. The, the, the format that you're, sh- that you're shooting on, you know, you'll shoot it on a, you know, professional digital format, whatever's, you know, fits the budget or the tone of the, the you know, the mood of the movie. And uh, if it's digital, you know, fine. And if it's film, then that might be a good choice. But it, it, he's one of the few that actually follow a film path, you know, to the exclusion of everything else. Um, you know, that's interesting too. I I think, gents, it's it's time. We're running close to uh, to our wrap time, and so I think it's time for us to do the hard work of this conversation, and that is to head over to flickchart.com and rank it. Uh, now, we walked you through this a little bit, Toby. It's a, it's a simple head-to-head ranking. We've ranked all of the films that we've ever talked about on this show, some 400-some-odd, and this Dunkirk will just get randomly paired with movies throughout our ranking, and we'll just Pick one uh, as we uh, as we go up the list and see where it lands in our overall stack ranking of films. Uh, and uh, Andy goes ahead and gives us a start here to, to kick us off. Indeed. Here we go. First off, we have Dunkirk or Star Trek Beyond. Well, that'd be Dunkirk for me. Uh, Dunkirk for me. And I will say Dunkirk as well. All right. Next up, we have Dunkirk or uh, a little Kurosawa. We're looking at Seven Samurai. Uh, that's, uh, that becomes a bit of a that's challenge, a, but I'm going to stick, more with, tricky. stick yeah, with Dunkirk. Yeah, still Dunkirk for me. I'm going to say Seven Samurai, uh, but Dunkirk will take it. 
Next up, we have Dunkirk or Aliens. Ooh. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It, it gets tough. It gets Jeez. tough. We, we right. actually call these a flick chart hate crime because it does not discriminate <laughs> between, you know, genre or. Wow. Um, no, it doesn't. Film. It's like you could be comparing apples yeah. to oranges. Boy. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to break. I'm going to pick Aliens. I, I am <laughs> oh, too. I didn't see that <laughs> coming, but I am, I am also going to pick uh, Aliens on this one. All right. Next up, Dunkirk or uh, some fun movie. We've got Got the world's end. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, my heart is with the world's end. That is, that's not, it's a pretty good movie, but I'm going to pick Dunkirk for that. I, uh, boy. I know you want to pick Dunkirk, Andy. You don't have to feel bad. I am picking Dunkirk, actually. Okay. All right. So you can pick the world's end. (laughs) I did what I needed to do, Edgar. I did my part. (laughs) All right. We've got Dunkirk or The French Connection with William Friedkin. I'm I'm going with Dunkirk on this. I'm going with French Connection. So it's uh, all on YouTube. I'm, I'm sticking with Dunkirk. All <laughs> uh, right. Next up, we have Dunkirk or Apocalypse Now. Oh come on! <laughs> <laughs> now come oh. on, man. If there were ever a more appropriate pairing, oh, I don't know wow. what it is. Come on. Both the movies are a bit of a trip. Um, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I yep. Yeah, no, I'm with Apocalypse Now. That is an all-time classic. That's yep, I'll go with Apocalypse that's Now a, as well. It's an extraordinary movie. Uh, I'm, I, uh, okay, well, it's a it's a vote of principle. I'm Dunkirk on this one, but <laughs> okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you're okay with that. All right, next up, we have Dunkirk or Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dunkirk on this yeah, one. Yeah, I'm Just going to we'll also sure go with Dunkirk. Dunkirk. <laughs> Dunkirk or Pee-wee's Big Adventure. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we have Dunkirk or The Matrix. Oh, wow. Ooh. Gee. I'm going to go with The Matrix. Yeah, I'm, I'm with The Matrix. Matrix here. Wow. Well, that is it, gents. Uh, Dunkirk landed at slot 48 out of 333. So uh, that is a pretty strong uh, standing for this. Wow, film. that's interesting. Because so, the, uh, the, so, the, so the films that you're comparing it with are only ones that you've already talked about on the yes. show. Yes. That we've exactly. watched, right, right. right. And, okay. and so, you know, to that, to that point, the films that we've talked about, with the exception of, I think, you know, Under the Cherry Moon and Rush, we, all, we love all of these <laughs> movies. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I love Under the Cherry Moon. Shut up, Andy. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, these are all movies that are great, yeah. so I, I feel like that's a, that is seriously a, and for me, we also uh, do a, a thing with partnerletterbox.com. Uh, it's just a, a star rating, and for me, this is a hard five stars. I, I really enjoy this film. I'm, uh, I, I, well, I, can you have partial stars? I, I rated this as a 4.5. What is it that shaves off a half a star? For you, Toby, how do you? Where do you shave off half a star on Dunkirk? Well, I, I only give away five stars on my own sort of mental rating of movies very rarely, uh, so it has to be an absolute masterpiece. And this this movie is almost there, but you know, maybe because you're not following, you're not tied as emotionally into a central character. Maybe that is something that just takes that little shaving of half a star off. You know, maybe that's even though it works so well in many other ways. So I'm not sure. I don't know. I think it might have been a four and a half had I not actually started crying during that last sequence. It surprised me so much that uh, I, 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 that's, this is such yeah. a strong. Oh, that's film, great. So. And Andy, is that you too? Uh, I'm at four and a half on this one. Also, it's, uh, I, I found it incredibly interesting. I, I do feel like this is one of those movies that certainly could go up. Uh, on uh, subsequent viewings, it was uh, it was just it was a really powerful experience for me just watching this film that largely I didn't have anyone to directly connect with. But then by the time I got to the end, I found myself still like emotionally invested with the group, and it, I, I found that such an interesting yeah, yeah. way to structure yeah, it. Me too. I agree. Thank you so much for uh, coming on and chatting with us about us. Do you do you live online at all? Do you if we want if people want to find you or learn more about you? Do you have Twitter or Facebook or anything? Yeah, I'm on Facebook, and uh, you can find me at uh, www.tobyoliver.com. It's my my site where all my work is, and um, so people can log in there. But I'm on uh, face, not so much Twitter, but I'm on Instagram and Facebook. The Instagram is that uh, Instagram at, uh, at Toby Oliver? Uh, yeah, Toby Oliver DP. Well, thank you again so much for joining us in the next Real Speakeasy. It's been fantastic and great talking about the movie with you guys. It's um, been real fun. 
Yeah, it was wonderful. And uh, for everybody else out there, we hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you heard, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those sites. And of course, head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel if you feel like uh, helping us out a little bit. And don't forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and comment. It really does help more people find us. Thanks for tuning in to the next reel, everybody. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. I'm gonna use you to be my friend. I love having these wonderful chats on movies we like with all these industry guests talking about some of their favorite movies. So many great conversations on that show about so many great movies. We have so much fun having these conversations, but producing the show week after week does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these incredible conversations. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all the adapted film discussions on The Next Reel's family of podcasts. Purchasing through our links supports the show. It's your one-stop shop for Amazon and Apple links where you can buy your copy of the original source material. Original material for movies we like, movies like Casino Royale. The Silent Partner. Never Let Me Go. Silver Linings Playbook. There Will Be Blood, based on Upton Sinclair's Oil. I believe it's Oil! Oh, yeah. I forgot the exclamation point. <laughs> Plus, by using those links to buy your next read, Apple and Amazon show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort. TheNextReel.com slash originals. It's a great way to support the show and find your next page turner. That's right. Head over to TheNextReel.com slash originals to pick out your next read and dig in today. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>